Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing two women that I met a year or two ago from the Kingdom Women Podcast. Judy and Rosanna both work with survivors of abuse, and Rosanna is herself an abuse survivor. I appreciate the openness that these women bring to the discussion of abuse, as their sharing of their own stories and of their work with others helps to illuminate the realities of abuse and cut through the propaganda which is so often present with abusers. There are a lot of points that the women make in this podcast which are insightful and that reinforce what I've tried to lay out here in the short section of the season. But there is one recurring issue they bring up that I think is really important to highlight before you listen. When we discuss propaganda, we are talking about the manipulation of information in some way. But one problem with our current view of propaganda is that we often view it solely as a means of infusing some information or idea into people. So we think of propaganda as being like, you know, the movie Inception, with these crooked people trying to get into our minds in order to plant some idea there. And in general, that's true. Usually propaganda aims towards uh, infusing or imparting some idea into you. That's right. However, what Judy and Rosanna touch on a bit in the interview helps us to see a slightly different aspect of propaganda. Part of what abusers do is they manipulate information in order not to create the clarity of an idea, but rather to sow confusion. And it's not just abusers that do this, of course. You can look at the popular political discussions in the United States and recognize that social media bots, news flooding, and a cacophony of always screaming voices creates an environment where there is usually more confusion than there is clarity. Yet, I would argue that that's by design oftentimes. Creating a highly charged emotional environment and overloading the system with multiple angles of information, it creates confusion. When the abuser says that he loves you one minute and brings you flowers, while the next minute he's calling you a stupid bitch who can't do anything right, how do you process those two seemingly incompatible things? Do you hang on to the I love you and the act of service, or do you hang on to the derogatory names and threats? Is it even possible to blend those two together? Which person is the abuser, the lover or the abuser? When you confront the abuse and he points to all the nice things that he's said and done, and you're just focusing on the abuse or what you call abuse, are you just being overly critical? Do you fail to acknowledge the good that he does? Hey, you know what? Maybe you are kind of a bitch, right? Maybe he was right about you after all. Now right there is propaganda in action. While the sowing of confusion isn't the inception of an idea into one's mind, it is a tool which makes fertile the ground in preparation for that message. When the survivor tries to process all of the conflicting, dissonant information in her mind, she can't. But you know who can help her to interpret it? The abuser. The abuser is there in the confusion, the solid rock, the guiding light, the prophet who can see the truth. He can help the survivor to see that she's emotional, that she's really hard on him, and that she's ungrateful for all that he does. The dissonance that the abuser sows is intended to heighten stress and emotion, while simultaneously lowering cognitive perception. We know this is what propagandists do because we talked about it all the way back in the second episode of the season. Propagandists create enemies. They thrive on fear. When you have an enemy and you are living in fear, you're going to look for a solution, for a savior. The thing is, when it comes to domestic abuse, the abuser makes the survivor her own enemy. She can't trust her emotions, her interpretations of events, her friends who all think she's crazy, or her own sanity. If she can't trust those things, who then can she trust? Only the propagandist. Only the abuser. So I'm looking forward to you hearing from Judy and Rosanna. Um, you're in for a treat from some people who um, are, are willing to share their stories and who have fantastic insight on this topic. So enjoy. Okay, so I think uh, we should just start off with each of you introducing yourself, um, and we'll go alphabetically. So Judy, go ahead. 
Okay, well, I'm Judy Beachy, and um, I got involved in abuse advocacy probably 15, 16 years, well, maybe more than that, 18 years ago, but specifically in domestic abuse advocacy about five years ago. And um, yeah, since then, it's been a journey of learning, walking with women, learning from them. Um, survivors are my best teachers, our best teachers in this work. I am getting certified with Called to Peace, um, a ministry that works with churches and communities to bring healing and hope to um, abuse survivors, domestic abuse survivors. And I'm also currently enrolled in school and working on a degree in psychology. I live in Northern Indiana with my husband and four kids. And yeah, that's the particulars, I suppose. All right. Thank you. Rosanna? Yeah, I um, live in Pennsylvania and um, working on my being a master's in clinical mental health. Uh, I just finished my bachelor's in crisis uh, counseling and psychology. Anyway, yeah, I, I've been working um, on, as a board member with Lifering Christian Ministries for two years, I believe. It's been in the works for maybe three. And um, I've, uh, I am a survivor of domestic violence and I've been involved with women for quite a number of years. I don't really have a timeline <laughs> somewhere in the last eight, probably. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, I have three children and, a, a girl and two boys and my two oldest kids are dating. So it's, it's an interesting time of life. <laughs> All right. Yeah, thank you. And this is actually the the second time that you've you've helped me out to try to understand this topic a little bit. So I appreciate you guys uh, taking your time and being patient with me as I I try to wrap my brain around a lot of this stuff. Um, and your vulnerability. I just I appreciate how you you are open because I know that that's the kind of thing that can help people. Um, keeping things secret, which is what uh, a lot of people have tried to do, is not a good thing. Um, so for me, uh, it's probably for a lot of issues, but, uh, the, the abuse issue in particular as well, it's probably only been about like five to seven years since I've really started to kind of come to see it and understand it. You know, the me too movement sometimes gets, gets a lot of flack, like, oh, it's, you know, it was a trend and it's just, um, it's something that's passing. But for me, it was extremely, um, it impacted my life a lot because you just see person after person after person um, come out who has this seemingly double life. And, uh, you know, beforehand, my, my concept of domestic abuse was, well, you know, you'd be able to see it, right? If, if somebody has a black eye or a broken arm or something like that, um, it's it's kind of obvious when somebody's being abused or you've got this guy who's maybe got you know the shirt that they call a wife beater you got he's wearing this wife beater and he's got tattoos he probably lives in you know not a gated community or something you know that that's the type of person who's gonna beat somebody um but i'm i'm learning more and more and you've helped me with a bunch of book recommendations and stuff um why why does he do that was like it, amazing um, but I'm coming to understand more and more that physical violence and, and domestic abuse is actually really hard to see. Could you guys maybe explain a little bit how you, how do we define abuse? Cause I think that's a, a really important place to start. It's not necessarily the black guy. So how do we define abuse and how does it generally play out in day-to-day -day life? Well, abuse is by definition, um, the use of, of power to um, coerce or control another and therefore harm another always causes harm. And domestic abuse is not really the incidents, it's the patterns that defines what domestic abuse is. And so domestic abuse is that pattern. So it's like a, a pattern of um, abusive behavior that's used by one intimate partner to um, to gain or to maintain control over the other partner. And it can take many forms, um, physical, sexual, you know, physical, we, we, like you mentioned, we think physical abuse, 
when we think uh, domestic abuse, but actually in religious circles with the women I work with, many of them, their husband has never laid a hand on them. It's other forms of coercion and control, um, psychological, emotional, economic, uh, spiritual, using religion to, to and religious dominance to um, control. And it's, it's, it's these, um, these, these way, things that are used to control another person's mind and therefore their behavior. Um, we often in I just advocacy world, we use, I don't know if you've come across this in your reading, the, the Duluth model, the power and control wheel. Uh, there are, I believe it's eight Rosanna spokes on that wheel, the different ways that um, abusers use power and control um, to, dominate, to dominate their partner. Uh, Rosanna, but before before you speak, I want to emphasize one word that you said, which is really helpful for me. Because um, the other day I was listening to, I don't know if you've heard of The Great Sex Rescue, um, but it, it's kind of been a popular book. I don't know if you like it or not. But anyway, one of the things that uh, the author said was, you know, she was talking about, um, you know, it's abuse if, you know, when you don't have sex with your husband, he, I forget exactly what it said, but like, he'll, um, you know, be cold to you or, or treat you rudely. And I was thinking, man, like, well then I'm, like my wife and I, we, we abuse each other throughout the year because, uh, there are times when, you know, if I don't do the dishes or if she doesn't do something like we'll, we'll get in a bad mood because it's like, I can't believe they did that. And I'm like, that's not abuse, but the word pattern is, yes. is very important there. And that helps me to understand, okay, so that's what she's talking about. It's not, you're in a bad mood one day. Um, it, it's a pattern and for control. Mm -hmm. I'm also, I'm also an, an adoptive mama, foster mama. And um, we talk about, so I, I, I raise kids who have, who carry some trauma and we talk about, uh, their trauma a lot. And of course the abuse victims are also carry trauma. We talk about how, when, when we make a mistake with our kids, we err and then we repair and you won't see that repair in an abusive marriage. You will see a pattern of domination um, and control where, where the abuser cannot own that he is um, doing what he's doing and, and cannot repair. So you didn't do the dishes one night and your wife got really annoyed at you and, you know, punished you the way we do as married couples in some way, got snippy or, you know, slammed something or whatever. Um, but she'll come back and she'll repair where she aired. And that doesn't happen in abusive marriages. Yeah, well, I, I, the pattern is a, is a most recognizable thing about abuse. And in like in Mennonite circles, like even in my relationship, I was only hit a few times. And, but the, pa the fact is I have, um, we had a pattern of like verbal and emotional abuse and the physical abuse only starts where um, you can, uh, it only starts where the abuser feels like he's losing control. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of control, since that's such a big idea, I want to talk a little bit about how abusers um, get control and maintain control. And specifically in this season, I'm, I'm focused on propaganda, like how information is wielded. Um, so from, uh, from reading, why does he do that? And one of the things that that was kind of clear is that a lot of times abusers will actually have two targets. Um, they'll target the victim and then they'll also target um, the the connections that the the victim has. And and um, I would love if you could kind of speak into maybe some real world examples or strategies that uh, that you have in regard to how do abusers target the victim and then how do abusers target people outside of the uh, outside of the victim and why is that important to target those relationships oh well one of the things that really using information to control or target is is very crucial especially in our like Mennonite churches that's that's how well actually in any church 
or any relationship that's abusive, the, the information is used. For instance, we were, uh, let's say a, a wife and husband are going somewhere and the husband tells the wife, you know, you must make sure you don't criticize me in public or um, do this or that when you're there. So that's, some of that is information. But then on the way home, he's like, well, you told so-and-so this and they think you're stupid or you're crazy. Um, you can't you can't just behave like an idiot around my family. And like those are one of some of the ways that that um, the abuser controls information to other people or to his partner. Mm -hmm. So also uh, an abuser will um, an abuser will always uses some form of isolation. Um, to to cut access off from his victim, from other people, and from the real. I mean, that's sort of what Roseanne is referring to um, when he when he gaslights a reality with a lie of how of how he claims other people perceive her, but then cuts her off from being able to talk to them. Um, and one of the ways he does that is by giving her a sense of shame and who she is telling her she's stupid. And so she's not going to go ask that person if they said what he said. Um, and so isolation is a common tactic of, of abusers to, to, to make up lies about other people, but then to remove um, those people that can anchor her in what is true and right in the midst of the fog. Um, it disorients her and, and prevents her from, from seeking out what is, what is the truth. Yeah, I guess the the abuser tries to burn the bridges. So on the yeah. on the victim's end, he gets uh, her to sever ties with those people um, emotionally mm -hmm. at first, but then that causes mm -hmm. causes her to kind of remove herself from those relationships. But then simultaneously, right. th those other people, you know, if he's saying, "Oh yeah, she's just really depressed," or uh, "She's just not," you know, right. submitting, she's just rebellious. And, and then those people kind of see that distancing as, you know, her rebellion or her, mm -hmm. um, her removal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. Yes. So he's isolating her there, but then he's also triangulating um, where he's bringing in other people into the situation to gain an advantage over his victim by um, determining the narrative of what you know, he sets the narrative of what's being said. I, I, I worked with one survivor who um, his son would catch him using porn. And so then uh, he would, he would go, he would tell his son, well, I, I'll, I'll tell your mom, you know, you don't, don't, don't talk to her about this because it's so upsetting for her. I'll take care of it. And so sometimes he would, and sometimes he wouldn't, but he was, he was, um, he was gaslighting them both by by saying what he was you know going to do and then didn't do or sometimes he would tell her but he would only tell her a very um watered down version of what had happened um and then he would he would maybe say that you know we should make sure that her, her children were teenagers you know make sure that you don't um talk to the you know say anything about this to the children because we really don't want them to be afraid that our marriage is falling apart or anything like that and so she was he was he was isolating them from each other cutting them off from each other but then he was also kind of triangulating things then he, to the counselor he gave another story and and made her out to be just like you were describing a, a poor soul who's you know depressed and confused and it just creates a web of confusion for the victim you yeah, also, and that, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, you also have, like, when somebody important does find out, um, like, let's say the church or so, then he's like, well, then he uses messages that they would approve of, such as, like, well, my wife was so insubmissive, or she's driving me crazy, and I just didn't know what else to do, so I flipped out and hit her, and I feel awful about it, you know, uh, the information that's that's being heard is something that the crowd around wants to hear. So, I mean, that is being heard by the church is something that they would understand or would, it would control, like she said, control the narrative, control what they think about her. So it's not only what she and the children think about each other, it's what everybody else thinks about her. Mm -hmm. So that, um, so that 
it would work into his dance of trying to make her do something that he likes or to keep on doing something that he likes, like as in um, making meals on time, you know, whether it was an accident or not that she didn't before, or uh, cooking full course dinners. Like one person that I talked to said their husband had to have full course dinners. And actually it was at their place one time, she had a beautiful spread on tomato sandwiches, soup, uh, and uh, like a whole lot of condiments, everything. I was like, oh, I'm so hungry. That looks so good. He said, let's pray. And they prayed. And then after prayer, he said, now I said, what's for dinner? And I was angry <laughs> and mortified that she'd, he'd said that right in front of us. Well, he was using information in a way that hurt his wife and in a way that would make maybe supposedly make us feel like she's inadequate. And she always does this kind of thing. Yeah. So one of the big questions that that I've had, and I think it's something that that you saw pretty frequently coming out of the Me Too movement, where a lot of people were surprised at all of the abuse that was going on, uh, is, you know, we're like, well, why didn't you like, why didn't you say something? Why didn't you come forward sooner? Oh, well, it's really convenient that you're coming forward now that somebody else has come forward or you know, after five years, like you should have come the first time he hit you or, um, so how, why is it usually hard for the victim to recognize? And I, I do want to ask, is it appropriate to call somebody the victim or is that demeaning? What's the appropriate word? I often say survivors, but some of them still are victims. <laughs> they're okay. still in it, you know, but if yeah. they're out of it, I usually say survivors. Okay. Uh, thank you. I'll go with that. So why is it usually hard for the survivor to recognize abuse as abuse and lies as lies when, when the man, and, and we're using men here too. I know that it can happen to men, but in general, um, why, why do they believe the guy when he says, oh, they think you're crazy or you're overreacting, you're stupid. Uh, nobody's going to believe you. Like why, why can't they see the abuse and why can't they see the lies? Well, he's usually charming in public. And I was going to say, you know, people like that work to control their images. Uh, So you've got that. um, Plus, a person that's been living under it has that element of shame, like Judy described earlier, and also doubts herself because of the gaslighting, usually. So you have got all that playing in with, I don't know, um, if you would say hit your wife and play do you call that hitting I had this thing where I did this minimization you know where well he never put me in the hospital or you know he never really hit me just smacked me you know he didn't punch me he didn't put um you know bruise my face well you know (laughs) that kind of thing he had this minimization thing going on and a lot of abuse survivors do that to cope but like you said even you said you think of abuse as somebody with a big swaggering attitude who walks around being mean to everybody. So a survivor doubts her own her own uh, definition of abuse. So she's got that going for her. So how do you tell whether if he only hits you once a year or, but you know, about every day, he usually says something criticizing or cutting. If he doesn't put you in the hospital, if he doesn't break a leg, uh, if he doesn't like really, really beat you up, you know, it's not a beating if he just smacks you once, right? So you've got that, all that confusion about the definition of abuse, the lack of education about abuse, and also the, uh, you know, your own natural shame. You've just got a lot coming out against you talking about it. Plus you go to church, nobody else looks like they're being beaten. Nobody else talks about abuse. You've got that playing with you too, with your head. Yeah, it seems like um, it, it seems like a big part of that is even if even if you kind of have inklings of there being abuse, if the rest of society isn't educated, if your community isn't educated about what abuse looks like, then you are going to think you're crazy because you no, know, if if I wouldn't have thought it was okay that that a woman was hit, but you know. It, Seven years ago, if somebody would have said, you know, we were we were in a big fight, we were yelling at each other, and he pushed me, I'd be like, I mean, he shouldn't have done that for sure. But 
like if he if he just kind of uh pushed you once like is that is that really abuse like i don't know that i would have i don't know that i would have been on board and known the patterns and 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 the things to believe somebody or understand how to how to cope with that and and think you know you asked your original question was why is it hard for a woman to recognize abuse as abuse it starts small um he slaps her once if it's a physical abuse thing um and then he is so so sorry and he makes it up to her and it doesn't happen for a long time again but she remembers the slap and when he gets the dark stormy look she quickly works to appease him and there's several factors at play here and some of it is like you mentioned and and rosanna mentioned the ignorance the, the lack of education there's just a lot of unawareness culturally um and in general, uh, regarding issues of abuse. And then you combine that with messages that women in Western Christianity at least get that um, her job is to submit and serve, to lay down her life. Um, and so a woman thinks that love calls her to endure all things, even a sometimes unreasonable man. And then if, if the abuse has no physical components to it, and it is just, it is just psychological um, and mind games, and, and that, that, that happens a lot in Christian circles, um, then you have, then you have the, all of that to sort through that creates such um, confusion and cloudiness for a woman. And so for her to sort through, like, he never hits me. This is not abusive. But but why do I feel like he doesn't like me? And why do I feel it must be me? And so the, 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 the blame and shame goes inward. And for her to be able to recognize it as abuse, it takes, it takes a, a lot. And I'm so thankful that in the last five years, it feels like this is a new frontier of discovery of what it means to care for each other and and to um and to to follow jesus and and to educate people on what it looks like to follow jesus even difficult marriages that are more than difficult they're abusive and so there's there's also like the the fact that uh um the the spiritual abuse is especially vague because everything the bible says is true right so if he says you need to be more submissive, there's like, wow, you know what? I really care about my faith and my spiritual life. I should be more submissive. So you've got you've got that um, spiritual abuse is so dangerous, especially maybe in Christian communities, because the Bible says wives submit to your husbands in the King James Version. You know? And in other versions, it implies the same thing. And, it, and it, it's true. I mean, you don't want a wife to just go, I'm going to do the opposite of whatever you want, or it's, that would be rude. But the fact is we had to use almost a whole Bible approach, you know, where you don't just submit, but the husband's also supposed to submit. And, but we haven't been taught this in our Christian circles. Generally, Christianity is bad at teaching the marriage passages because they almost always do that where the wife is down here and the husband's up here, then God's up here. You know, we call it the umbrella of authority. But I'm beginning to question that model as far as what the Bible is actually teaching about the, the umbrella of authority. Rosanna, I should say, you're I just beginning it. to question it. Right. I, I've, I've been reluctantly kicking and screaming, letting go of that concept. You know, and Judy would know because we've been friends a long time. <laughs> She still says I'm egalitarian and I should just admit it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it seems more like a tango. I mean, I, I've read more, um, you know, you talked about Dr. Witt and and uh, talking with him, but um, just seeing the idea of mutual submission, um, you know, even, even if you go complementarian and that's true, uh, it's also very true that there should be more uh, emphasis on submission uh, on on the man's part as well, uh, service, laying down life. Um, so either way, whether you're egalitarian or complementarian, there is a an emphasis on the woman's role for some reason. Um, so I I definitely want to 
talk more about the church and its its shortcomings and maybe what hope we can have for it towards the end. But uh, Judy, you mentioned something that I want to get to first, which um, you you talked about how you kind of become acclimated to the abuse. You know, it starts small and then it gets it gets uh, worse. And um, but at the same time, I've also I've also um, reading Jacques Ellul on propaganda. He talks about how we get uh, acclimated. He calls it mithridatized, which is like you become used to the poison, and so the poison doesn't look affect that word you. Up. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 his word. I learned the word too, but you become acclimated or immune to the poison over time. But at the same time, and it seems like it, it's kind of. Uh, it, it it doesn't follow that you could have both of these things. But the other thing that happens is you become sensitized uh, to it, where it's like you become more attuned to the abuse. And you mentioned something earlier, like uh, you see the storm in his eyes or something, um, or, you know, you, you, you make one mistake and you're like, you're on edge. So could you talk a little bit about, um, you just talked about becoming acclimated. Could you talk a little bit about like what becoming sensitized and becoming just on edge about things? How does, how does abuse just make your life a wreck in regard to always being fearful? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I could answer that. I live one. in a state of hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Rosanna. Well, and, and, and yeah, hypervigilance. And that, that has to do with, with um like you said or one of you said that you know when he hits you one time he can use that as leverage you really try to you don't want things to get to the extreme and an abuser only uses as much force as necessary so basically he learns a body language or he has a body language but he's more freer to use it as time goes on that you can tell by the set of his shoulders or the the expression on his face, what he's feeling like. So when you walk in the door, you don't want to escalate the storm. Although there were times at the end of my relationship that I wanted to escalate the storm just to have it over with. Um, If he blows up, then he's usually a little calmer after that because he's got it out of his system. But it's not a good feeling. You get physical health issues from that amount of cortisol in your body. So, but they that is a message and it's a signal to the woman that she needs to get in her place quote unquote um or try to appease him that's what judy said and that's very appropriate language um when yeah and and abuse doesn't always do that storm thing where it the fact is the fact is the abuse might escalate and de-escalate as days go by but the the control always increases it just goes up and up and up until you're like swamped and then you've had enough if if he doesn't kill you first Mm -hmm. yeah and and it's a weird it's a weird state of being i mean uh, to survive in a in a um environment like that a, 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 a victim in that in that state has to disassociate to some degree um, because because you can't process that much trauma um, all at once. And so it's this weird thing of both disassociating and becoming hypervigilant and always attuned to um, the abuser's mood, like, like uh, Rosanna was saying, his body language, his just, just his presence just being super attuned to that, hypervigilant, but also when the abuse happens, you disassociate. Well, that trauma has to go somewhere and it goes into the body. And like Rosanna said, then many women end up with health issues that are, um, you know, seem to have no cause and they can't pinpoint treat the, the cause or treatment because what is it? Well, it's actually trauma stored in the body. And so it's, it's both, it's both that hypervigilance and at, at times the, the disassociation from the effects of that level of abuse and trauma. But then what, what often happens, well, I'm not sure if you're gonna get into this, but as a woman steps away and begins to recognize what's happening, that this is an abuse situation, that this is toxic, that this is not something that I should be allowing to come against me and my children. As she begins to step away and heal, there's a sense in which uh, for many women, their sensitivity becomes even higher 
because now that they are aware and naming the abuse for what it is, it's almost like they're, they're triggers. They become more easily triggered. Um, and as they step out, if they get away and are exposed back to the abuse, um, so, so there's so much that happens and I, I'm learning so much recently about what happens in the body throughout abuse and trauma. And it's, it's fascinating stuff, but it's also heartbreaking stuff because this is affecting women that I love and children, their children that I love as well. One of the things that, that I noticed is when I left and it, it gets more dangerous when you leave. Mm -hmm. The abuser has mm -hmm. lost control. So he'll do a lot more. The time a woman leaves, she's usually, you know, that's when she'll be killed or that's when she'll be mm -hmm. feeling the most threatened because that's when he that's is the most, the most dangerous season. Yeah. So basically you have that so that you are living on the edge for the first, I don't know, I always say a year. The first year is always the worst. But then um yeah. And then as he realizes he's lost control, there's always situations with the children, if they have any, or maybe the house, you know, various things like that. But anyway, but there's that. So if you start healing, you might start healing where you're not quite as triggered. The first time his, you think his vehicle's going past, it might be another vehicle. Or when you um, hear a voice in the crowd of people that sounds a little like his or um things like that but but after a while that gets better and but when you get healthy and you're around the person the next time you will be quicker to call out abuse and name it abuse because you'll recognize the physical symptoms in your own body and your knowledge has increased about abuse so you've got that your level of healing. I don't know that you would, I would say that a woman gets more desensitized or sensitized, but that she gets, that her, her knowledge um, increases, her own self-awareness increases. So yeah, she's probably becoming more desensitized to, well, to, to what, what would it be the uh, step in duty? She's more yeah, she's more, she's, she is becoming decent. Her triggers are being untripped. Like she, her right. triggers are being un, un, untriggered. I mean, what's the word? Like the trip wires are being <laughs> unconnected. Like re reset. Yes. yes, yes. But her knowledge now, her knowledge that she now has makes her much more aware of, and she can pick up on you know, the vibes, the sense she, she, she's much more vigilant. And I, I did not, I'm not in an abusive marriage, but there was some abuse in the home I grew up in and I can pick up still how many years later, I'm 50, almost 51, how many years since I've left home, but I can still pick up on the vibes from homes that were similar to mine. Mm -hmm. As, especially since I've become more educated and knowledgeable. So it, I'm, I'm not sensitized, but I am, what's the word I want, Rosanna? I, I'm more aware. You recognize, um, yeah, you're more aware. I was going to say like now, whereas before you might have stopped the conversation or the interaction up here, now you're going to stop it back there and put up mm -hmm. your boundaries down here and put up your boundaries because now you're going to say, you know what? Oh, He's trying to control the situation. I'm going to back out, put up a block and just say, you know what? I'm not talking to you right now. I'm going to hang up the phone. Whereas before you might have left to get up here because you knew when his level of tripping is. <laughs> so how do you how do you start to see that in the first place for the first time? Uh, because if you're if you're so inundated by the lies that he's telling you and by fear, um, maybe you even think, you know what, this, this really isn't abuse. Cause I didn't go to the hospital. Like what causes people to see that for the first time and to step out of that? Sometimes it's somebody else telling you that yeah. at least that's how it happened to me several times. It, it took a long time before I realized that I was in his, in fact, I didn't even realize it when I left how deep I was in it. I know my counselor told, told um, someone in my presence that we were having a three-way conversation that um, I was so enmeshed. She didn't think she could help me at first. Well, and yeah, it took people, but it also took me realizing that there were 
there were people that could help me. No, I don't know. I was desperate. I needed to get out because I was going crazy. You know, I was I was on the verge of I was living my nerves and everything. I was living in tension so high that I felt like I was going to snap and I recognize my own children's uh, anxiety. Their trauma was was in, interfering with their development. You know, things were happening with their behavior that made me realize that it's time I do something. And and it was there's there's uh, the the best thing we can do for survivors is to tell them, you know what, I don't like that. That that doesn't make me feel safe. Does it? how do you live with that or is are you okay and and point it out in gentle ways you know don't well you're being abused you know Mm -hmm. because they're gonna like oh stop it you know (laughs) no that's embarrassing how could you say that you know I've had one person do that to me and I was angry and humiliated (laughs) but um but yeah I just like hey that that doesn't feel safe you know I don't like that Uh, how do you like it and that's Mm -hmm. that's the question that got me out of it how do we how do we all learn about ourselves or about our um, what we're experiencing or about our needs? It's usually it's usually through other people, through other people's input into our lives. And so I think, you know, as as we become educated, it's just like just exactly like Rosanne was saying, Rosanna was saying that we can step in and say, um, I'm not okay with him treating you like that. Like that made me really uncomfortable. I, I, he didn't, he wasn't respecting you. Are you okay with that? It plants the seeds. It plants the seeds that makes her question. Wait, if she thinks it's not okay, maybe it's not okay. It doesn't feel okay to me, but I was just treating women. It is like Rosanna said, when they see their children begin to be affected, then they realize, oh, something's got to give. This is not okay. Um, and so it's a combination of things. Very few women on their own, unless they have, been raised in a very healthy home themselves. This does happen. If a woman's been raised in a very healthy home with um, very um, solid parenting, parents with a great um, connection to each other, they may recognize on their own that they are in an abusive marriage, but that's not typical. Typically it takes someone stepping in and saying, hey, um, I'm not sure what's going on here, but I care about you and this isn't okay. And that's a good way of using information. Because you're basically feeding them more correct and healthy propaganda. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think we should call it healthy propaganda discipleship, you know, or ah. uh, apprenticeship. So I like that. Is um, propaganda ever a positive word? Yeah. So I mean, it it started off as as kind of a neutral word with the the Catholic Church, just saying, "Hey, we need to go teach people," um, and so it was propaganda. So yeah, I mean, propaganda doesn't necessarily mean lies. It just means you're, you're using information to educate, but it's come to mean, it's come to mean the manipulation of of information, usually for not good purposes um, or, or for one's own self-interest. Yeah. Okay. So so I want to get into the church. Um, And, and I think the church probably you know, it's not that the church has unique problems so much. I think that institutions in general, I mean, you can go to Hollywood and see that they have, uh, you know, sexual abuse problems and the, politics, doesn't matter where you go. But we are Christians and we value the church and um, we know that it has problems. So I want to focus a little bit on the church and we can kind of extrapolate that to other institutions as well. But how how does the church play into abuse as you've seen it? And at least from, from what I've been seeing and hearing, why is the church so often not a safe haven for women? Why does it perpetuate abuse or harbor abusers? Judy, I was going to let you go here. (laughs) You go first. Um, well, I think there's a theology of womanhood that's unhealthy in the church generally. And we talked about that a little bit here in the podcast. So you've got lies that are, or, or misinformation that's being an imbalance of teaching that 
put women down here and men up here. And that is solidly, that solidly feeds into an abusive uh, relationship. So you have that in the church. And I'm, I'm not saying, yes, I'm saying that it's really bad because um, I, was, I was just thinking right now of all the literature out there that teaches women how to be good wives and good spouses. It's all submit, give up your life, like uh, knuckle under, you know, uh, communicate. Like if you, the power of a praying wife, if you pray for your your spouse enough, he won't be bad, you know, or if you submit, then he's going to be a godly, God, decent guy. And if you, um, there, there's a huge message across churches that, that, um, and I think it's, I, I don't know where it started, but somehow this crept into the church and it's not leaving. And, and I feel like we could do a whole lot better about, about teaching the fruits of the spirit and in interactions with both men and women. And, and if we're dominated, if we're led, I'm sorry, by the fruits of the spirit, then you're going to be treating other people, including your wife and children, respectfully and kindly and gently and tenderheartedly and with knowledge, you know, there's, there are scriptures against abuse in the Bible, against abuse of, of wives, you know, husbands being out harsh with them, or um, an abuse against abuse of children, like, you know, be, be, um, uh, bring them up in the nurture and admonition, it doesn't say strict discipline and punishment, you know, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to teach us, and the way that the information is being shared in churches is not very healthy, it could be more balanced. And I don't know why this is, unless it's part of the curse. Which for that's really sad. If it's if it's if we're if we're allowing or if we are as the body of Christ allowing the curse to dictate um, our relationships, even within the church, and especially toward um, the most vulnerable victims of abuse, that's to me is tragic. I think women's voices aren't, for all the lip service given to um, men and women are equal. You know, all that, all the lip service given to, to the quality of, of men and women. Um, traditionally, the circles I move in are, are uh, more patriarchal and um, complementarian. And whether, whether you, however you feel about, about, you know, those terms or, or that way of thinking, um, associated with that just it just happens as part of that package is that women's are not valued typically and so in 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 churches in more traditional churches women's voices aren't as valued and so when a woman comes forward with allegations of abuse we we might investigate it um I've seen this happen numerous times where this, sure, she'll, she'll be listened to, she'll be heard, uh, they'll start to check things out, but the man comes with his tale, with his narrative. He's so polished and put together, so believable, so humble, so um, sorrowful. And so there's, the woman is disbelieved. There's no yeah, way that uh, she'll be, that her story, Right. She's often a mess or if not a mess, she's at least not presenting very um, as as uh, polished. And so I don't know how I don't know how to combat that. I don't know how to um, I don't know how we, we go about elevating women's voices so that they are believed. But but often what I will say to people is there is no way there's no woman who wants to admit that abuse is her life. No woman wants to admit that. So if she has the courage to come and say, um, my, my marriage, my marriage is, is something's wrong and I, I, I'm feeling confused and, and, and I'm feeling something's not right. And I, I, think I'm, I think I'm in an abusive marriage. If she has the courage to come say that, believe her, lean in and listen, because she doesn't want to be in that marriage. It's not what she signed up for. It takes a great deal of courage to overcome the shame of that, to even begin to say anything. And, and we, yeah, I, I, that's, I, I think, I think the silencing or the not believing of women, women in their voices is huge. 
but I don't know how to combat it necessarily. Yeah, it's uh, almost like men are the the sex that's most easily deceived, you know, because they believe abusers all the time, which is uh, a little bit ironic, you know. Um, so I've finally, yeah, yeah. Um, so finally, I I can think. I know one case that I can think of that um, in a church from back in the States where there was an individual who claimed that her husband was abusive and it went before the elders and everything. Um, and essentially from my understanding, I wasn't at the the hearing or whatever, but um, you know, he might've gotten censured a little bit like, Hey, you know, calm down. And she was told to submit. And that was, that was ultimately the conclusion have have first of all have you seen a lot of churches actually have real church discipline for abusers and then the the, the follow up to that would be how do you how do you go through a process like I, I was just talking with my wife the other day i was like i mean even knowing what i know about abuse if i have two people come in front of me and i'm not in their home i don't have cameras in their home um I've got two people telling stories. I think the wife is right because knowing what I know about abusers, she probably is if she's coming forward. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've got our mindset of innocent until proven guilty in, in the United States. I'm like, how do I, how do I go about discipline or, or following up on this? Like what insights do you have to that? Well, it's really hard. Uh, I I know one church put put both parties in timeout. In other words, they both they they disfellowship both of them, and after a long time, a number of years, they realized that she was telling the truth, and they left her back in, and he still disfellowship. But. Um, yeah, it took that lady, it took her years of talking to ministry and, and tell, educating them about abuse for her to be um, heard. And I, and I think that, like, have I ever, I don't think I've, I don't think I've ever seen church discipline happen to an abuser. Um, the, the most churches do is a slap on the wrist because I don't believe churches really generally believe abuse is nothing less than beating somebody black and blue and putting them in the hospital. So you don't really, I don't really feel like I've heard much about abuse that's less than that. They will support you if you end up going to the hospital. They will support um obvious abuse but but they don't generally believe or value like I've had people ask me well was he drunk when he hit you or did he um like is there there must be some kind of something that made him do this or or um the other thing was was it does he hit your kids like is that uh is that proof that he's what kind of proof does a church need? And I'm sorry, but like churches just generally do really badly about disciplining. What do I want to see? I would like to see people actually, actually believe a victim right at first, because like, like Judy said, it's really embarrassing to be, to, to present with a story that, you know what, my husband's abusive, but also when somebody denies it, that's also very much of a telltale sign. Like if you would say, well, no, he isn't. My wife is stupid or whatever. Basically crossing an abuser proves that he's, if you cross an abuser, he will turn on you. And that's how you can prove that an abuser is an abuser. But does it happen? I think churches hate to make somebody feel bad. But even there... But, but even there, Rosanna, with, with the um, kind of, of covert abuse um, that we see a lot in religious circles, 
not always do abusers turn on the outside world the way they turn on or you know turn they don't always turn against religious leaders the way they turn against their victims um and so i don't hesitate to say that because i i've seen cases where um the victim or the the abuser just becomes more polished more covert more slick and manipulative um, and fools everybody except for his victims, um, his wife, his children, um, and those who are walking closely with them. And so they don't always turn. They may often, but not always. I think what I long for, because like you highlighted, Derek, these cases are so tricky. Like you, you, you described, what would you, you asked your wife, what would you do if you had um, a victim come and tell you, like, how would you handle that in a church setting? You know, we all like formulas, right? Including in churches. We like formulas. Here's what we would do if X, Y, Z happened. Here's our policy for how we handle that. And people just, people in relationships just don't work well with formulas. Um, it's, it's case by case, it's situation by situation. I think what I long to see as an advocate, um, what I long to see is, is like Rosanna said, that churches believe victims and that they allow their approach to these situations to be victim led. What do you need to be safe and to thrive? And knowing your husband the way you do, knowing his patterns, knowing his needs, knowing his ground, his story, what do you think he needs to be um, held accountable or to be discipled if he really does have a desire? And there are some, some abusers who, who do have, you know, on the lower end of the scale maybe and um, have a desire to, they are repentant, but their patterns of thinking, their mindset is, is so twisted takes a long time to untangle. So to, to allow our, our church discipline, if you want to call it that, our discipleship to be victim informed is huge. Um, but we tend to not trust the victims to know because, oh, they don't have the seminary degree or they don't have the Bible knowledge or they don't have, um, yeah, they just, they just don't have it together quite. So we tend to discredit what they say. From my point of view, I, I really feel like we'll be much, we'll respond to these situations um, much more wisely if we lean in and humble ourselves to be learners from those who know the situation best. And those who know the situation best are those who are being victimized by the situation. And I know that's not a very tidy, formulaic answer, but I, I think it has to start there with some education about what abuse is. And then with a willingness to humble ourselves, learn from the victims. That's what I was going to say. Education, education, education. Churches must get educated on domestic violence. And believe it or not, the church is way far back on education compared to the world. The world's yes. got education yes. on domestic violence and they believe survivors generally. The church does not. Yeah, you know, as I hate as you... to say this, <laughs> but it is true. It is true what Rosanna is saying. I, I see in 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 my experience, which is you know not that long, but I have seen courts do far better, a far better job of protecting and supporting and empowering um, victims of abuse than I've seen churches do, and that grieves me. I don't want it to be that way. I pray and I work toward change. Yeah, you know, uh, the not being a formula and being relational, I think, is is particularly helpful. Victim-led is helpful. You know, as I as I was thinking about it, something clicked for me where it's it. You know, I'm thinking, oh yeah, I guess it is about a relationship. I'm I'm thinking in the mindset of being punitive. Like if if you've got uh, a couple who comes, or the, the woman comes and talks about being abused. And like, okay, well, who do I who do I punish? Who do I reprimand? Who do I excommunicate or, or remove from the community? And it's like, well, you know, of of course I'm going to have difficulty there because I don't want to <clears throat> judge the wrong person. But if I viewed it more as a relationship and said, hey, um, survivor, what do you need right now? Okay, we're we're going to come by. 
throughout the week, you know, we'll, we'll come knock on your door. What time, what days and times are you home? You know, we'll stop by a couple of evenings throughout and, and check on you. Um, guy, we're going to, uh, let, let's schedule, you know, every other Wednesday, let's go out and, and do lunch and we're going to talk. Uh, if it was, if we tried to figure out who to reprimand and, and punish, and we viewed it more relationally and said, you know what? This is going to require investing time in somebody and and checking in to make sure that the survivor's okay. Um, yeah, that seems like it would be it would look a whole lot different. Chris Mole's model is I think, to actually I think a, lot, a lot of us. It must be a lag, I think, here, but Chris Mole's model is to actually have one person check with the survivor and the other person check with the uh, the abuser. And, and then run the stories together. You cannot ever really talk to them each in uh, together, it won't work. But uh, yes, relationship, but also um, should there be justice? Yes, I think so. But another thing we talk about being victim-led, a victim will be far more merciful to their abuser than you will or a, any other person would. Mm -hmm. But also, that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, because victims do know they do love their abuser. Usually, I mean, they really, yeah, they they hate the abuse but love the person, and that's pretty good. However, um, one thing I'd, I've heard is like a preacher will say, "Well, I was really tough on that guy," and I don't like to hear that personally because being tough is what. Um, abuse is all about being powerful and so using power and control to stop abuse doesn't always work because it's not teaching them how to relationally love and be submissive but teaching uh, for a preacher or somebody a preacher's job I would definitely send an abuser to somebody with experience counseling abusers but for for a preacher to do that I wouldn't see a place for that however the other thing is when you have a an abuser, you really want to teach the abuser gentleness, patience, meekness, humility, and kindness, um, rather than toughness. Yeah, and you also, the, the, the abuser's entitlement, his entitled mindset, his selfish mindset needs to be addressed. And so that's a completely different, different scenario, like couples counseling, I think we might have mentioned this in the last podcast we did with you, Derek, but couples counseling does not work for these kinds of situations because this is not a couple's issue. This is a personal issue for them, for the, for the abuser who has an entitled, proud mindset that needs to be addressed and repented of. And so that's that's not a that's not an issue between the couple. That's his own personal issue that needs to be addressed. And that is partly why Chris Moles, um, that is part of why Chris Moles recommends um, sort of a a two-team approach to these situations where one team cares for the victims, the other team, the other team um, disciples, the abuser. And I love how Rosanna highlighted that powering over to make an abuser cooperate, kicking him out or doing whatever you do um, doesn't really, I mean, it just, it just reinforces his model of relating um, and he doesn't need that reinforced. Yeah. And, and uh, like you said, you know, justice is important, but that's not going to help him change. If, if he's able to change and willing, that's not going to, to help him change for sure. Right. And, and uh, justice, I, I, I often, I've thought so much of this over the last six months, um, justice on my terms isn't true justice justice on God's terms is going to look a whole lot different than I might. I mean, justice to me, for me is rescue the victim and punishment to the perpetrator. Right. But that's not, that's not how God, that's not God's approach to justice. And um, I, 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 want to, I want to learn to, to live, to do justly, love mercy and walk humbly with God and other people. Um, and, and leave the justice in his hands, the, the final justice for these kinds of situations. Amen. All right. So um, I think that's that's all that I have written for you in terms of questions. Is there anything that you think in regard to the conversation that we had that would be helpful for other people to know? Is there, there anything we missed? Is um, 
there anything that that you've tucked away you're like oh, i just i need to say this all right okay then thank you so well, much I, for i uh, don't really have anything sorry i don't really have anything i just wanted to thank you for um I mean, with the whole theme of propaganda, you could have you could have used any um, issue of the day to to illustrate and highlight propaganda and the way information is manipulated. Um, but the fact that you've chosen to highlight domestic abuse um, and how that ties into uh, propaganda, I, I just really am grateful because um, there are many many women who um, will benefit from. Um, from people who listen to this podcast and learn from it. And I really appreciate it, Derek. I agree. Sure. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you guys for being vulnerable and uh, coming on and, and talking. That's all for now. So peace. And because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.